What if you were a pisky girl born without wings, raised underground, and desperate to learn to fly so you can venture into the strange world beyond? That is the start of author R.J. Anderson's fantasy series, The Flight and Flame Trilogy, whose book 2, Nomad, just released in November 2020. And now, R.J. is our guest on Fantastical Truth. Merry Christmas, season's greetings, and a happier new year as you return to Fantastical Truth, the podcast from Lorehaven. I'm E. Stephen Burnett, Lorehaven's publisher, and as of fall 2020, also the co-author of a nonfiction book about fiction called The Pop Culture Parent, Helping Kids Engage Their World for Christ. Lorehaven's Fantastical Truth podcast fits within that mission by exploring uniquely fantasy and science fiction and beyond novels that are written by Christians. And I'm Zachary Russell, and on a regular basis, I have dreams about flying. I once jumped out of an airplane. I should probably try hang gliding. And I bring all this up because this is episode 45, How Can a Tiny Wingless Fairy Learn to Fly? And we'll be talking with R.J. Anderson, the author of the Flight and Flame Trilogy. R.J. has also written many other books in fantasy and other genres. Uh, she particularly likes uh, reaching out to YA readers, that is young adults, and uh, also some uh, you know, older middle grade readers as well. So plenty of her stories will appeal uh, to kids who are just you know, pretty experienced at reading, but also ready for uh, a little more challenge in terms of the, uh, the style and substance of books that they enjoy RJ has been known to us for quite some time. Uh, she started listening to Fantastical Truth early and even before Lorehaven got started. She was active in the comments section at the original blog, Speculative Faith, uh, still going on at lorehaven.com. Speaking of lorehaven.com, you'll want to uh, be fixed on that site within the next few months because we are rolling out some big upgrades going into 2021 some new contributors, a different style of uh, putting the reviews out in a more timely fashion, lots of things you'll want to keep up with. And you can subscribe for free and get all of those updates at lorehaven.com slash subscribe or see any of the links that we have in the show notes for this episode. So we got some reviews here of R.J. Anderson's book. So, Stephen, you want to read uh, the review for Swift? Yeah, Swift is book one of the Flight and Flame trilogy series. And we reviewed that actually just in our last uh, fall 2020 issue. And the re review for book two, Nomad, is coming out in our next issue. So rolling them out just as quickly as these books are releasing from Enclave Publishing. This is the almost full review for Swift, in which our volunteer reviewer says, quote, a famous movie colonel stated, you can't handle the truth. But just as often, it's even harder to handle getting to the truth itself. In R.J. Anderson's Swift, book one of her Flight and Flame trilogy, a miniature young pisky woman named Ivy must handle many difficult situations. Only then can she learn many different truths about her mother, her real allies and enemies, the piskies themselves and their real history, the outside world and whom she can trust, and herself. Ivy's story feels self-contained, though not every question is answered or conflict resolved. This little novel packs big twists and turns that will keep readers engaged all the way through the end. End quote. You can get the full link to those reviews at lorehaven.com slash reviews, or you can see the links in our show notes. In the next book in the series, Nomad, uh, we have a review coming out for that in our winter issue of Lorehaven. And the review says, quote, tiny heroine finds big adventure in rj anderson's nomad 
book two of the Flight and Flame trilogy series. It follows Ivy's adventures as she explores the greater world, learns more about her gifts as a child of piskies and fairies, and makes new friends as well as a powerful enemy. Her efforts to help her pisky clan appear largely thankless, and she becomes embroiled in the convoluted past of her companion, Martin. Developments and discoveries abound, though as befitting the middle book of a trilogy, fans will find little resolution so far. Overall, Nomad is a rollicking read with some fascinating conflicts and plot twists that should be very satisfying to those who enjoyed the first book, Swift. End quote. And now we get to meet the author herself, R.J. Anderson. R.J., Rebecca Joan Anderson, is a Canadian author of fantasy and science fiction for older children and teens. Her debut novel, Knife, which has sold more than 80,000 copies worldwide, was a Canadian Library Association honor book and won the Concord Book Award in the UK, while her young adult thriller, Ultraviolet, was shortlisted for both the Sunburst Award in Canada and the Nebula Award in the U.S. Her latest release is the Flight and Flame trilogy, beginning with the U.S. editions of Swift and Nomad, formerly published only in the U.K., and wrapping up with a brand new third book, Torch, coming in February of 2021. Rebecca, we've known you for a while at uh, Speculative Faith, a site from which Lorehaven arose, and it's great to finally get to meet you here on Fantastical Truth. It's great to be here. Hey, welcome, Rebecca. So tell us, how did you first find biblical truth and fantastical stories? Well, my father was the first one who exposed me to Christian fantasy. One of my earliest memories um, is of him reading to my three older brothers in his deep, rolling British voice, doing all of the uh, voices For the Lord of the Rings, the the, the Hobbit, the Lord of the Rings, and Narnia. So to this day, my father's voice is the voice of Aslan and the voice of Gandalf to me. Um, My father was a a Bible teacher um, in quite a conservative um, Protestant group, uh, the Open Brethren. And um, so he was a lifelong Bible teacher. And I never really caught him reading fantasy or fiction even for fun. He was usually reading his Bible, reading theology, but he took that time to expose us to Lewis and Tolkien. And every Christmas he would put into my stocking a book by George MacDonald or John White or uh, Stephen Lawhead or whatever he could find in the Christian bookstore that looked like it would interest me and, and would be you know, something that would satisfy my love for fantasy. So I really appreciated that. He really cultivated that love of fantasy in me. And I don't know where he got it because his dad was super, super conservative. And I'm not sure where where he discovered Lewis and Tolkien even. But uh, yeah, that was a big formative thing for me. Wow. So that was the the origin story for, I mean, to you then growing up, and this is a great blessing that kind of fantasy imagination and biblical truth, it sounds like we're, we're intertwined. Like you know, there wasn't at least in that regard, a place to separate them. So you kind of no, got, there the... was never any conflict in my mm. home to the point where I was mystified when I would go to other places. My dad often spoke at Christian camps and so on. We traveled quite a bit, uh, other churches and, and camps and such. And so sometimes when we would go to different places, I would run into people who were very against fantasy. And I was like, what, 
world are you coming from? Like, I don't even understand. <laughs> so yeah, there was never a, a sense of, of conflict or, or fear for me about that. Um, I very much had a very strong baseline for what was true and right and good. And so as I branched out into secular fantasy, which I did quite early because there wasn't enough Christian fantasy to keep me reading, I measured things by a biblical standard. So I, I very much would shy away from things that smacked of the occult and, and you know, false gods, you know, magic that came from worshiping false gods or making sacrifices or anything like that. I very instinctively shied away from that as a child, but I certainly read very widely in the fantasy genre from a young age. Well, I love that, that to you, someone who doesn't read fantasy is weird. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Well, that's how I I feel so sorry for you. Right. (laughs) And I think that is changing in, in many Christian cultures and it just takes a while, I think to not only connect a love for fantasy to uh, the, the patron saints of Christian made fantasy, Lewis and Tolkien, but it also takes a while then to see in biblical worldview, what, all this fantasy is for in the first place. It, you know, it sounds like you had your, not just your mind cultivated, you know, trained to uh, be imagining uh, the things of, of God there, but, but also just your heart uh, through, through exposure to these stories young. Uh, I think it's so important then that, uh, that a lot of fantasy from Christian creators be geared toward the younger readers who I think need it most and who can therefore grow up and develop into adults and hopefully continue that preference as long as they live. Well, and I think North American Christianity really lost the script as far as fantasy was concerned, because really the roots of fantasy are with Christians. I mean, you go all the way back to the fairy queen, um, you know, it's a, it's a it's a biblical allegory. You go back to uh, Pilgrim's Progress, you know, and so on. You have these great works of fantasy that were written by Christians out of a Christian worldview, even to illustrate Christian truth. And you have writers like George MacDonald that thought nothing of writing what they then called fairy stories, and Lewis and Tolkien were talking about them in a very favorable way without any sense of needing to defend them to Christians. But somehow in sort of the middle part of the 20th century, especially in North America, I think, where it was less, fantasy was less familiar to the Christian subculture, it became associated with the hippies and with drug culture and with this uh, occultism and paganism. And so there was a real sort of a fast withdrawal from that ground by Christians at leaving it to the secular writers who hadn't really started with it in the first place. Right. They may have had a yeah. vestigial memory of, you know, Judeo-Christian culture in their head, which led to some yes. common grace reflections of the gospel. Absolutely. But the further we move from that as a foundation for call it Western culture, uh, you know, the more you get more of a copy of a copy of a copy effect. Uh, the original is going to dim and you're just going to get more and more artifacts from secularism and paganism in that copy. Right. Yeah. So I'm glad to see now that Christians are sort of rediscovering those roots and and discovering the potential of fantasy to tell spiritually resonant parables for Amen. a modern and, audience. And uh, we actually had uh, you write an article on a similar theme in one of the first issues of Lorehaven, and we really need to link that in the show notes. Uh, We may include a quote from that as well, just to explore more of that side of this discussion. Well, you know, and I'm even thinking about when you said the roots of fantasy are with Christianity, you know, there's a parable of the talking trees uh, that's in the Bible. It's in the Uh, book of Judges. That's right. 
Yeah, right. it's one of those. It's one of those uh, obscure narratives in the Bible. It needs to be discovered by a breakout uh, author who writes it in a tiny, very giftable, franchisable hardcover uh, that and takes it's even. By, to... It's a told by a child, so oh, I mean, there you or go. At least he, you know? There's your kitschy right. cover right there. Yeah. That's marvelous. <laughs> Let's get on it, folks. Yeah, and I I wonder if uh, you mentioned a lot of reasons why uh, fantasy has become associated with things that Christians aren't okay with. But I also think that, you know, we, we've embraced so much of the enlightenment and rationalism and the scientific revolution, and, and none of that is bad in and of itself. But I, I feel like we've sort of set up this dichotomy or this conflict between, you know, the mystery aspect of fantasy and the, the kind of the whimsical aspect versus the, you know, the hard science yes. uh, aspect of the West. And so it it's almost like we are we're just kind of choosing one approach to the world over the other. And it's not really a conflict with our faith. It's just that those, we, we set up these other conflicts, but, um, but w- what I'm really curious about Rebecca is what is it about the experience of reading fantasy that made you want to write it? Well, obviously, as I said, I started with Lewis and Tolkien and I was reading at a very young age and I basically couldn't get enough books. And the first place I went was the fairy tales and folklore section of the library. And I basically read my way through every book of fairy tales and folklore that I could find uh, before moving on to more modern works of, of fantasy fiction. So it certainly called to me as a child. I think part of the reason being I was fairly I was a fairly lonely child because I was the only girl in a family of boys who were mostly teenagers by the time I was old enough to be reading and so I didn't have a sister or other people to interact with and I didn't have a lot of friends and so reading was my companion and also because of I loved the element of escaping into a better world because I was badly bullied at school so part of it was that desire to to retreat to a world where the lines were clear cut between good and evil and where good triumphed and so on. But at the same time, I was continually reminded of the real world. I wasn't unaware of, of the realities of life, but it was sort of a soothing balm to go to another world for a while. Nobody had ever really told me that writing was hard, so it just seemed very natural to me to graduate from reading books to writing stories. And the first stories that I wrote were purely for myself as an eight-year-old. I wrote and illustrated my own group of stories called The Cat Chronicles about me and my 16 fabulously wealthy magical talking (laughs) cats who lived in an underground (laughs) palace. And uh, I just wrote those for me and never showed them to anyone else. And um, but then as I got a little older, I thought, hey, it would be really cool to write a story that other people would read, too. (laughs) So, um, yeah, I just I, I almost can't remember a time when I didn't want to write or when I didn't want to be a published fantasy author. And fantasy was very much my my home genre. So what stories have you created? You started at least the debut novel that you had published was called A Knife. That was uh, the start of the No Ordinary Fairy Tale series. And then you've moved into some other genres as well. And most recently, you have the Flight and Flame trilogy from Enclave. Uh, Nomad just released in November. That was book two. And then uh, book three to finish off the series actually comes out in uh, just a few months, uh, uh, February 2021. I'm, I'm curious, like what 
what images, what um, what imaginations jumped unbidden into your heart and led to the creation of these worlds? Well, with Knife, for sure, my my debut novel, the origins were um, pretty clear that I, as a child, read the Flower Fairy books by Cicely Mary Barker, which um, are actually books meant to teach children about botany. And uh, they're very accurate botanical illustrations, but they come with these beautiful illustrations of of children sort of as fairies. And I love those as a kid. I love the idea of small winged fairies, but that looked human as opposed to wildly monstrous or strange that you might see in 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 other kinds of fairy right. drawings. The fae of mythology who will like swap yeah. your children and kidnap you forever. Yeah, I wasn't so interested in the monstrous fae. I was interested in the near human fae. And so that planted an idea of sort of near human fairies in my brain very early. As I moved into my teens, I got very interested in uh, Marvel comics. And my brothers ran a comic book store. And so I read all the X-Men and other Marvel comics as they came in. And I was also interested in drawing. So I drew a lot of superhero characters, mostly women, uh, for my own interest and amusement. And one day when I was about 16, I drew a winged, small, fairy-like character throwing a dagger at the viewer. And I called her Knife. And as soon as I did that, I thought, there's a story here. Why is this small fairy-like creature so deadly and why is she throwing a knife and what does this all mean and so that idea stuck in my head and then it became combined with a reaction i had to madeline lengel's book a swiftly tilting planet in which the hero kind of jumps between uh, different people in time in the course of trying to solve the book's central problem And one of them is a young man in a wheelchair named Matthew Maddox, who was my favorite character in the book. But he's a very tragic character because he's portrayed as someone whose life is blighted because of being in a wheelchair. And he can no longer he can never have a full life. He can never have the girl he loves. He's doomed to die and so on. And although I love Langle, that made me super mad (laughs) because I thought there's lots of people who are wheelchair users who are going on with their lives. And and I don't like this idea that I keep seeing in fiction that the wheelchair user or the person with a disability gets shunted off to the side. So I then conceived of the idea of writing about a character with a disability that would be a major part of this first book of mine. So it took a few years for that idea to brew. But when I was 23, I started writing this book about a fierce young fairy hunter who fights to save her dying people while concealing her forbidden friendship with a human boy who uses a wheelchair. And uh, that was the book that I then worked on for like the next 15 years until it was published and became my debut novel. So it took me 15 years because I had a lot to learn about not only how to put words together, but to tell a really good story. And What I had to learn was digging deep into the characters' inner lives and their emotional and spiritual journey over the course of the book, as opposed to just the events of the plot. That was the thing that made the difference for me between being an unpublished author who was competent and readable and being a published author. So you went from Knife, and then what were the other two books of that series called? After Knife, I wrote Rebel, 
which was a finalist for the Christie Award, which was really nice. And uh, Rebel is definitely my most overtly Christian book. There is explicit discussion of Christianity in the story and uh, how it plays into the fairy's own theology. And one of the main characters is a missionary kid. So uh, then after that came the third book in that trilogy, Arrow. Yeah, and that, that's the series my kids have read. So that's that's really really fun to get to talk to you about this and kind of where all these came from. So what I'd love to know, though, Rebecca, is what or how do fairy tales uniquely reveal truth about reality? I think fairy tales do a wonderful job of, as Lewis said, stealing past these watchful dragons of people's resistance to spiritual truth. And I think that can be true for Christians as well as for non-Christians, that when you take ideas that are are spiritually deep and, and complex and you put them in a new context or a new framework, you can approach them without the defensiveness that comes from people looking at these same issues in the real world. So you can talk about things like prejudice. You can talk about things like spiritual hard-heartedness and so on. By framing them in a fantasy context, you can get people to look at them from a new angle. And I mean, I think that's what the parables of Christ did, that sort of stripping things down to the the basic essentials and right. and reframing them in new terms to help people see them. And and some people just didn't. I mean, for some people, the parables obscured the meaning rather than revealed it. But for Christ's disciples, they were a means of teaching and revealing the truth and cementing it in people's minds in a very memorable way. And I think fantasy at its best has a wonderful power to do that, to be a memorable way of conveying truth. Amen. Lewis, in his uh, essay about that, uh, where he mentions that it's a pure moonshine to create stories, you know, ju- you know, just putting it all together only to teach truth. He nevertheless says that although the right. imagination starts with the bubbling, it then leads to the form, which then leads to the goals of the man as a citizen, as a child of God, in which he says that, you know, like I thought about lions and then I thought about the fairy tale as a story, uh, a genre. And then I thought, okay, the big goal here, though, is to communicate truth in a way that is stripped of the stained glass and the Sunday school associations, those yes. symbols that, you know, are well meant, but can freeze emotional response. If you're obligated to feel reverential, then you're probably eventually not going to feel that way if someone tells you to. So I'm, I'm curious, too, I've heard you use the phrase Christian fantasy a few times. Some people don't like the term. Uh, they think that it automatically carries a host of connotations. And for them, the label Christian fantasy is the dragon that's on guard, you know, to, to not be taken in. Like, what, do you have any a take uh, particularly on uh, you know, labeling of story Christian or otherwise? Well, I would say, you know, in this case, by Christian fantasy, I would mean fantasy written by Christians yes. from a Christian worldview. There we go. As opposed to fantasy that is merely conceived for a certain subset of the book market. So I, I consider myself a Christian fantasy author, though most of my books have been deliberately written for the general market. It's only my reprints of, of the fairy books that have come into the Christian market through Enclave. So that's an, actually a new experience for me, writing 
for the Christian market, so to speak. So you've kind of gone from one direction to the other, whereas some I have, yeah. Christian authors like, oh man, I'm stuck in this Christian market. I really wish I could just, you know, break out there into into the the wider world. So your your experience is very different. Yeah, I mean, from the beginning, even as a very young author, I wanted to write for the general market because I felt there was a need for Christian voices in that market. Amen. That was greater than the need for Christians to have sort of heartwarming stories of things we already know. Uh, a lot of the the Christian books that I was reading at the time, I think Christian publishing has grown and changed since then. But at the time, they were basically sort of sports books in the sense it was rah rah our team. And here we are, we got somebody from the opposite team to change teams, and that's the climax of the story. And you know, yay us. And yes, it's nice, it's wonderful to see someone saved, and it is heartwarming to read the story of someone coming to the knowledge of Christ and believing the gospel, but there's so much more to write about beyond that point. And there's so many things that need to be said that are surrounding that basic salvation message. Anyway, so I I really wanted to have some sort of positive influence as a Christian author in the general market, because I saw that people with pagan and atheistic philosophies were being very vocal about their philosophies in their fantasy in a way that I could immediately recognize and tell. And I was like, where are the Christians who are representing the beauty of the gospel, of redemption, of of hope and of salvation and so on in their books? That in a way that will hopefully awaken the hunger of people who don't know Christ to to know something more about him. Oh, amen times 10. Uh, Christians may feel like they have to follow the rule of just just enjoy the story. It's just a story. There's no, you know, don't be preachy. Don't be preachy. They say very preachily sometimes. <laughs> Where, whereas folks who are non-Christians, like they seem to be more organically made people. They 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 do have the images and they put them to form as Lewis mentioned, but then they also have those goals of communicating what they believe is their view of reality and what they believe is their right. view of virtue. So, you know, everybody's right. already doing it. Uh, mm-hmm. Christians may as well be direct about it. The only qualifier there, of course, is that the Christian creator must pursue excellence and excellence yes. in worldview and in doctrine does go beyond uh, another story that illustrates uh, John three sixteen. And then suddenly we're at the concert, uh, you know, kind of the stereotypical yeah. finish to the stereotypical Christian fiction, unfortunately. But uh, the gospel is uh, is no less than that uh, an initial conversion, but it is so much bigger. And the story possibilities are so much more epic in scope. Well, I think that's really it. You can't sort of put in a piecemeal, you can't put in a sermon into your book and expect it to read like a story because sermons are not stories. And so in order to tell a compelling story, you do have to leave open a measure of ambiguity. You have to leave open the possibility that people won't get the message that you are trying to send or that they will misinterpret it. I had one person react to Rebel, my, like, as I said, my most overtly Christian book by saying, oh, I just think it was so lovely how you said that all religions are the same. And I'm like, uh, no, (laughs) but that's what he took away from it because that's what he wanted to see in it. Even though I think I pretty clearly did not say that, but that's what he wanted to take out of it. So you do always run that risk, but that's where the Holy Spirit comes in, right? I mean, Lewis was very deeply influenced and moved toward 
the desire for holiness by reading George MacDonald's Fantasties, which I read as a young person and didn't, didn't really get much out of it all. I much prefer um, MacDonald's uh, Curdie books, The Princess and Curdie and The Princess and the Goblin. Yes. I found those much better than Fantasties or Lilith, his adult fantasies. But Lewis saw something in that book that I, even as a Christian, did not. And the Lord used that to draw him to Christ. So that sort of heartened me with the idea that I don't have to preach four exact points and, and an altar call in my book for the Lord to use it. What I need to do is tell a really good story, tell the truth about people, and tell the truth about God as much as I'm able and let him work. Well, and that's exactly right. And you make a very good point there about how Fantasties led Lewis to the gospel. But for you, it just kind of glanced off and it wasn't yeah. like that, that deep of an analogy. And it, I, so to me, what that, what that says, and this is something I think about a lot, is that I think as Christians, we expect fiction to do too much. Yes. And where evangelism actually happens is between people. Yeah. You know, what really led Lewis to Christ was J.R.R. Tolkien. Yes. And and his other little group of friends. And so Lewis wouldn't have put the pieces together by himself. And I think we sort of have that expectation sometimes of Christian fiction is that it should just do everything. And then we can mm-hmm. just hand someone a book. It You know, it, it's it's the same. Uh, Stephen, we got to talk about the chick tracks at some point, the Jack oh, chick yeah. tracks. Oh, that's and, a future uh, episode. That's the- Yeah. <laughs> But, you know, we, we sort of have this, we, we sort of like put uh, fiction in the same category as a chick track. It's like, oh, here, I'll just give this to you and it'll do everything and then I don't have to say anything. And yes. that's like a lot safer. But, you know, I, I'm a very big believer in personal evangelism, like emphasis on the person. And so a book, like a fiction, can a fiction book can be a way to start that conversation, but we shouldn't ever put the entire burden of the of evangelism on a book like we should take that up on ourselves and it's it's not a burden it's a privilege Amen. yeah i mean i think fiction at the best is planting a seed right. it's not watering it it's not making it grow it is simply planting a desire for goodness a desire for something higher in the hearts of the people that read it and it's either going to do that or it's going to plant a desire for something which is disordered, which is not right. And so you have to exercise discernment about reading fantasy. Is this sort of thing that I'm reading drawing me toward things that the Bible praises as good and right and true and so on? Or is this thing that I'm reading drawing me into things which are contrary to God's will and God's word? I think as Christians, we can include more of more of the goodness in our writing because of what we know is true from God's word. But we, yeah, we can't make people want that. That's, as I said, the work of the Holy Spirit. Exactly. Well, and I, I love how earlier you said, you know, you started reading fantasy to sort of escape. And, but, and you were escaping from, you know, these different problems and challenges in your young life. But it's also that you were escaping to something greater. And I think back to my own life that I really fell in love with fantasy as a young teen or even almost like a preteen uh, because so many of the messages in the world in, in my personal experience were, were painting this really negative picture of masculinity mm. and what it means to be a man and that just men are just 
even before the phrase toxic masculinity you know, became a thing, like I, I saw that firsthand and I, in, in lots of different ways as, as a really young kid, unfortunately. And so I grew up with this desire of, I want to escape from that, but I also want to escape to a better picture of manhood because I'm going to become a man one day. And so where can I find that? And, um, I, I wasn't a Christian until I was, uh, midway through high school. But so in all the time before that, I was reading these fantasy books about these really heroic, honorable men that, that were just great role models for me. And then later after I became a Christian, I started then reading, you know, more of the nonfiction book about what does it mean to be a Christian man? And, you know, there was a book uh, that really influenced me around that time called wild at heart. And it was like, no, manhood is a good thing. Like masculinity is a good thing. Like God designed it that way. And I'm like, oh, so everything I've been reading my whole young life uh, about, you know, these heroic, you know, warriors or whatever, like there was a lot of truth in that that was sort of pointing me in this direction. And so I, I absolutely think that God can do exactly what you said is just put that desire in you, that seed of it for something better. And it's something transcendent that we're just not seeing in the, you know, the world around us. And then that we can then bring into the real world. Well, I mean, you look at the roles of manhood you had in The Lord of the Rings, for instance. You have characters like Aragorn and Faramir who are very strong wise leaders of men, but at the same time, they're also poetic. They're also gentle. They're also compassionate. You know, the hands of the king are a hands of a healer. You have that relationship between Frodo and Sam, which is so loving and tender in, in such a beautiful way and was an echo of the friendships that, that Tolkien had seen develop in the trenches in World War One. So it's a wonderful balance of both the sort of heroic, protective warrior model and also that sort of poetic gracious gentle manhood which is so lacking from a lot of portrayals of of manhood in hollywood and so on it is you see them coming back a little bit in in a lot of the superhero films uh, both marvel uh, and dc where you can yeah. have flawed male characters you know sometimes controversially flawed but you know still people trying to be heroes and trying to be aspirational my wife and I are rereading the Lord of the Rings uh, trilogy, and we noted uh, at the beginning of the Two Towers uh, where Aragorn is, of course, the leader of the company of the three hunters trying to pursue the band of orcs. And he is making the calls. He's calling the shots. And yet he's also allowed expressing. I mean, the narrator doesn't go into his deep point of view, but he, Aragorn is voicing his uncertainty about his own choices. You know, he's, mm -hmm. he's at once a firm leader and yet also expressing uncertainty you know he, he so yeah. you can tell there's more going on there so in, in speaking of hunters uh for for knife you had you know a, a fairy a hunter uh how is that different uh, i have to ask how is that different than from your, your newer series the first two books releasing from enclave actually re-releasing for the first time in the u.s i understand and then picking up to finish in february 2021 uh how is the flight and flame trilogy different uh, from the no ordinary fairy tale series and what uh, images or ideas led to its creation yeah well the no ordinary fairy tale series um uh, began with this concept of small english fairies living in a hollow oak tree at the bottom of the garden the idea was that these fairies had lost their magic through some mysterious event a hundred years ago that no one understood and were struggling to survive. So my heroine knife was a very sort of brave, dynamic character because her job was to go out and hunt food 
for the other fairies and protect them from the predators that would otherwise kill them, um, and also even to protect them from the humans who might be a threat to them. And then, of course, she gets caught up in this idea of what happened to our magic and how do we get it back. So I was building that world of these fairies, their relationship to humanity, what had happened to their lost magic, how they had changed and so on over the centuries. And I was building that fairy world over the course of those three books. So it expands from the back of the garden to a journey that goes across England and Wales, and then a journey that comes back from Wales to the original location, and there's a fairy war, and, you know, it it got kind of big and epic by the end. After I finished those books, my English publisher was happy with the way that that series had performed over there. Uh, Knife had been a a runaway bestseller, which was great for them, and they wanted another book. And I thought, well, I, I finished this first trilogy, but I could start another one in the same world with a different group of characters that would have some links back to the first trilogy, but could also stand on its own. So I came up with the idea for a a trilogy set in Cornwall. The uh, first trilogy is set in Kent, um, just outside of London. The uh, second trilogy would be set in Cornwall, uh, further to the west, which is where my maternal grandparents emigrated from to Canada in the early part of the 20th century. So I had Cornish background myself and some of that heritage, and I was very interested in exploring more of the local folklore about fairy uh, characters and so on from that area. So I started digging into it and found some very interesting things about the uh, Cornish pixies, or as I chose to go with for my story, piskies is more of the regional term for them. Um, I chose that because when you hear pixie, you think of a cute little girl with wings and sparkles. And I wanted to move away from that into something that was more tied to the mining heritage of Cornwall, because they were very well known for their tin mines, as people who have watched the uh, BBC series Poldark will know. So I wanted to di- to delve into sort of the mining aspect of things. And uh, there's a Cornish legend about the knockers who were considered to be fairies of the mines who were either benevolent and helpful to the miners or sometimes a threat to them, depending on which legend you were looking at. But the idea of fairy miners was interesting to me. And so I started doing some research into that. So I came up with this concept of the Cornish piskies living in an abandoned tin mine. And that was their refuge from the present day world. All my fairy books are set in this world in the present rather than in some magical fairy uh. land. So they're, they're, they're contemporary that whenever they go out and interact with the human world, it's airplanes, it's cars, it's not Victoriana. Anyway, so I, I wanted to blend that idea again of this character who had been raised all of her life in this underground mine and protected from the dangers of the outside world, venturing out into the modern world and discovering it and going on a quest. And that was the the book that became Swift. And then it expanded over the course of the next two stories to, um, it, it's kind of a Moses and Pharaoh story that um, Ivy, my heroine, ends up in conflict with her aunt, who is the queen or the Joan of the Piskies. And her aunt has very strong ideas about what will keep their people safe and what they need to do to survive. 
And as Ivy finds out, there are some things that the queen doesn't know. There's a danger to the Piskies that will kill them if mm. it's not addressed. And the queen refuses to believe that this is the case. So there, it becomes a let my people go kind of situation where Ivy is trying to free her people from the queen. And yet they are also so attached to the way in which they have always lived and so slow to change that it's very hard to to convince them that they need to come out of this situation for their own well-being. So there's a lot of spiritual parallels in that, the idea of coming from darkness into light, the idea of, you know, uh, escaping from slavery, the idea of, um, you know, what it means to be a true godly leader, to be a shepherd leader, a servant leader. Um, that's something that I go into over the course of the books, particularly in the third. Right. And then that third book is coming out this February. Is that right? That's right. Yeah. Yeah. There was a big gap between books one and two and this final book. I always wanted to write a third book, but at the time my UK publisher was going through some changes and they weren't really sure that they wanted a third book. So uh, I had lots of people writing me saying, you know, I loved the first two books. Where's the third one? And I had to say, I don't know if there will ever be a third one. I really want to write it though, even if I have to self-publish it. Mm -hmm. So I'm very thankful that Enclave was willing to pick up Swift and Nomad, which had only ever been published in the UK, and bring them over to a worldwide audience, and then also give me an opportunity to publish this third book. Well, Enclave has been on a roll lately, and so it's it's they wonderful. Have. It's wonderful to hear that uh, that they're able to pick up those stories that may have had a, a you know more niche audience before, uh, and then give them that uh, that wider spread, and then and then allow you to finish the story as well. They did something yeah. similar for for Kathy Tyre's books uh, several years ago. Uh, and then there's been a few other situations like that. So that, that's just great to follow their progress. It is. Yeah. So, uh, Rebecca, where can fans learn what's next for you after book three and then uh, follow your creative endeavors in the future? I am most active these days on my Instagram, which is RJ Anderson Writer. I also try to keep my website uh, fairly well updated. That's at rj-anderson.com. I'm occasionally on Twitter at rj-anderson, but it, I'm not there as much as I am on Instagram these days. Uh, I also have a Facebook fan page, which is, or not fan page, but a author page at uh, RJ Anderson Writer as well. Uh, that's basically a mirror of my Instagram, more or less. And then uh, we also see you dropping some wisdom occasionally in the comment section at, uh, at the Speculative Faith blog at lorehaven.com, <laughs> which I think is where, uh, where I got to know you, just through uh, some of the really great things that you had to share there. Just really contributing to the, the growth of the place uh, for, for which uh, you have my personal thanks. Oh, well, thank you. Yeah, I've enjoyed contributing there when I get the chance. Well, it's been wonderful having you today, uh, Rebecca. Thanks so much for joining us all the way from Canada. And uh, we can't wait for this next book to come out. And God bless. Thank you very much. Godspeed, Rebecca. Well, that was great hearing from Rebecca Anderson, RJ Anderson. And now let's hear from the fantastic fans. So, Stephen, what do we got in the mailbag or otherwise? Well, these are some responses to uh, the topic that we explored in our last episode of Fantastical Truth, episode 44, about St. Nicholas, uh, titled, How Might Santa Claus Serve in Your Christmas Celebration? Uh, of course, lots of people have lots of opinions about Santa Claus uh, as part of their growing up or as part of people they knew growing up. And so uh, we want to make sure to reflect, you know, the diversity of opinion, because it is opinion that people have within the church. Uh, several people uh, responded to this topic. 
including actually a chap I know uh, from my old narniaweb.com forum days, the original warrior for Jesus, uh, Christian Jaschke, Australian extraordinaire. And he wrote, quote, my parents didn't believe that he, Santa Claus, was a danger to my upbringing and imagination. I just never grew up with the belief in Father Christmas, so he never really made an impression on me. I remember being very young and getting in trouble at school for telling my classmates that he wasn't real. No malicious intent. I was a curious child. At seven years old, I remember being flummoxed by his appearance in Narnia, but I got over that quickly. End quote. Am I the only one around here who wasn't flummoxed by Father Christmas appearing in the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe book or movie? But it seems that, Zach, you are not alone in that flummoxation, if that is a word. <laughs> and uh, uh, my friend Christian here uh, seems to have been one of those kids, uh, but also fits within the category we explored in that episode, uh, kind of the agnostic approach uh, to Father Christmas. Like, well, you know, who really cares? He's, he's not real. Like, okay, Maybe we'll pretend he is, but, you know. Kids, uh, you know, may have missed out on some enchantment there, but I think he's found plenty of other ways to get that apart from a belief in a literal Father Christmas. And we got Denise Bryce who wrote, quote, the American story of Santa Claus has evolved far beyond the European historical figure and legend of St. Nicholas. I distinguish between the American Santa and the historical St. Nicholas. I see Santa Claus as a competitor to Jesus. Santa is omniscient, knows when you've been sleeping omnipotent, that's a lot of toys to deliver, and omnipresent, every home in the sort of Christian world on the same night. December 6th is St. Nicholas Day in the Orthodox and Catholic traditions, and that's a fine day to hang stockings, end quote. And that's funny, Stephen, that uh, Denise writes about that. I, I have a friend that's uh, from Germany originally, and he told me about St. Nicholas Day and kind of gave me a quick education about it. I really didn't even know there was such a thing, and so it was really fun learning about St. Nicholas Day from, you know, from now from two different people. You know, if we can get two days in December on which Santa Claus brings toys, that would just Here fix everything. That I can't see <laughs> any drawbacks to that. No, and I, I appreciate uh, Denise's view here, you know, the, the, the idea that he can be a competitor to Jesus if you load Santa, this is my view here, if you load up Santa with this kind of omniscience and near omnipotence, you know, he's basically a member of the Q continuum at that point, just snaps his fingers and boom, the living room is full of toys. And then the omnipresence too, you know, it stretches credulity if you're a kid and you actually start uh, thinking about those things. One of my favorite Santa movies, like I really should have mentioned this in our last episode, uh, is not just Father Christmas's appearance in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, both book and film, which are very similar in that regard and how they portray him. But Arthur Christmas, the animated film from Aardman Studios, is fantastic. I think that is actually my favorite Christmas movie it is about the legacy of the Santa family, which honors the idea that there's, you know, one St. Nicholas, there's one Santa Claus. They actually have a little montage showing how, you know, this family developed from the legends of St. Nicholas, but they're making sure that he is not omniscient and omnipotent. The way that he's able to meet all of these obligations is through technology. So it is uh. fun. It is hilarious. Zach, you have to see this film if you haven't already. Uh, Santa's sleigh is actually an inverted bright red glowing starship enterprise <laughs> called the <laughs> S1. It's got a command bridge. It has an engine room. You know, it has this, uh, you know, huge gargantuan space inside where they pack all of the toys and roll them off conveyor belts. And it's not Santa personally who's going into living rooms. It is all the elves who are doing it. And they have all these fun little trinkets and gizmos to give the impression that Santa has been there. 
it's at once a deconstruction and a rebuild of the Santa Claus idea. And I think it's just a really fun way to honor the spirit of those contemporary legends, but also humanize Santa. You know, he is a tired dad on Christmas and he has two adult children, one of whom is Steve, who's like this uh, uh, hugely you know, corporate efficiency management type. And they don't hate Steve either. The story doesn't hate Steve. It just Steve's got to grow. And the hero is his younger brother, Arthur, who is a little naive, but very idealistic about the idea of Santa. And then uh, Arthur has to go on this crazy journey on Christmas Eve to give the one gift to the one little girl who truly believes in Santa that was somehow left off the conveyor belt in the S1 and never made it down her chimney. So I'm going to gush about that just a little bit. Um, I just think it's a great uh, kind of a curative to the, the omni-Santa. Like I, I think we can maybe push back on some of those ideas and also definitely push back on the naughty and nice list thing so that Santa is not seen as a competitor to Jesus. And the name of that uh, movie again is Arthur Christmas. You can rent it on Amazon. I think, uh, I don't know if it's on any other streaming services. I just bought it on Blu-ray. Ignore the sticker on front that proudly proclaims. We've got a song from Justin Bieber here that did not age well. The film itself didn't do well in theaters, but it's being rediscovered by more fans. And it's it's fantastic. It's fantastic. Uh, Tim Steele wrote, quote, we made intentional time when our children were toddler and elementary age reading. Twas a night before Christmas penned by Clement Clark Moore, coupled with a book explaining the historical St. Nicholas, fourth century A.D., in an age appropriate way, which led to some great conversations, allowing our children to enjoy the Christmas season and yet also celebrate the reason for the season. Uh, end quote. That, that's a, that's a also a very Christian response, helping to educate your kids about the, the historical origins of the contemporary myths, uh, just holding them up to examination, you know, not only by scripture and the incarnation, uh, but also just the plain, uh, the plain history of the church and how Christmas got started. I think it helps to demystify the origins of Christmas. And so therefore, as kids grow, uh, they can see past some of the clutter that has arisen over the holiday and understand uh, the reasons for the beauties that are mixed in. Well, to finish off our episode, we've got a stranger than fantastical fiction item here. And this uh, goes in line with the last thing that we shared. So the headline is former Israeli space security chief says aliens exist, humanity not ready. And there is a galactic federation that has supposedly been in contact with Israel and the U.S. for years, but they're keeping themselves a secret to prevent hysteria until humanity is ready. So, Stephen, this is a really fascinating story. I've been following this for the last week or so. It's uh, this comes out from Haim Eshed, who is the former. He's the 87 year old former head of the Defense Ministries Space Division from Israel. And he's uh, come out with this very long interview with, um, I, I don't know how to say this right, but Yediat Aharonat. Now, there is some controversy about if he really said all these things or if it's been made up, uh, but uh, I, I'm still looking into that. Is this one like, of those things is, uh, where like the, the Pope says something and then it gets widely <laughs> distributed and it's kind of a wink and a nod perhaps from, uh, from the papacy and, and then the clarification comes out later that, oh, he was, he was mistranslated again. Uh, the, the, yeah. the interviewer paraphrased again, that kind of thing. It, it could be that sort of thing. Um, so I will, we'll, I'll keep my eye on this, but you know, this term galactic federation started trending on Twitter. 
uh, aliens was trending. These were all like number one trends. And uh, apparently uh, he said that uh, President Trump was about to reveal the truth about aliens. Uh, If you'll recall, there was a a viral video of him being interviewed by his son. And uh, his his son, Donald Trump Jr. said, I want to know the truth. Are there aliens? You know, what's it, you know, what's it area 51? What happened at Roswell? And president Trump said, well, that is very interesting. I've been looking into it. Uh, I'll, I'll see what I can say. And, and he was kind of like coy about it, which everyone made a big deal about it. Like, why would, you know, he always says what exactly you what know, he thinks. Trump like, well, knows why would he... that aliens get attention to <laughs> audiences, love aliens and Trump loves yes. audiences. So, you know, whatever the audiences love, <laughs> all right, we're not going to get into politics there. I just think it'd be hilarious if Trump said, yeah, I'm going to reveal the truth about aliens. And he just unzips his forehead. Right. Uh, and they're like all lizard people. Bulbous, uh, you know, bulbous creature underneath there, which kind of explains a lot. Uh, Doctor Who, uh, modern season one fans with the ninth Doctor, uh, 2005. Shout out to you guys. Trump is a Slitheen. That's, uh, that's the plot twist here. Uh, this thing about the Galactic Federation is completely against canon. Uh, it is Earth and Vulcan, <laughs> uh, along with the, some help from the Andorians and other uh, benevolent species who put together. Uh, the Federation, uh, after the Vulcans made first contact with Earth by way of Zephyrin Cochran, who developed the first functioning warp drive uh, in the uh, mid to late 20th, no, 21st century, if I recall my timing correctly, uh, following the eugenics war uh, in the Star Trek timeline, at least the prime universe. Uh, all, although we may not be living in the prime universe, we didn't have a eugenics war. Uh, people got wise to that and headed it off. So obviously there's been some time travel going on and maybe somebody else went and started the Federation without us. I certainly hope not though. Um, I, I'm a little, I'm a little skeptical about that. Well, you're apparently not ready. Just like, um, I'm a shed said, so, you know, I'm ready. So, Hey, Hey, I will, uh, I'll save a place for you. The galaxy okay. is not ready for humans. <laughs> if you've seen that, you like, you like memes, Zach, you like some memes. I've seen some, remember the memes about how like, you know, aliens are actually scared of humans. You know, because yeah. we will frequently use for recreation a substance that if we inhaled it would kill us, swimming pools, <laughs> beaches, uh, you know, we, we devour the other, uh, you know, sapient life forms on earth, uh, for fun and pleasure and have multiple <laughs> different recipes. There's all kinds of, uh, all kinds of different memes on that subject. I think it's a Tumblr thing. If I, if, if, if I recall correctly from my wife who shares these when she finds them, um, I, you know, seriously from a biblical worldview, uh, I, I imp- explicitly reject the idea that there are other sentient life forms out there who are more powerful or certainly more morally righteous than human beings, arguably angels, but those are a spiritual uh, dimension entity under the direct management of God. And I, I don't go for this whole, you know, benevolent uh, aliens out there who are just, you know, holding themselves back from earth. Ew. You know, they're still stuck in their uh, corporeal forms, whereas we have arisen to the level of incorporeal existence and are more enlightened. That's that's new age stuff. That's not even classical science fiction stuff. That's that's kind of some kind of some heathenism there. Mm -hmm. Well, and and you'll be uh, you'll be glad to know that the you know, the hardcore UFO researchers that I kind of follow on Twitter and keep tabs on, they're they're saying exactly what you're saying. They're totally skeptical oh, of this because they're like, well, look, it's just one guy's claim. Uh, what, God what bless kind of, him. Well, what kind of evidence does he have? Like, you know, how, how can I put any of this to the test? And they're they're very, you know, nuts and bolts and just show me the, you know, show your work kind of people. And so it, it's everyone is taking this with a grain of salt and having fun with it. But hey, don't we all need something like that? Just 
just have fun with and just just kind of laugh about and just turn off the rest of the news like it's it's a fun topic and so we'll we'll uh, we'll cover this in more detail in an upcoming episode in our very next upcoming episode on fantastical truth about 15 years ago in december 2005 many new fans first entered a magical wardrobe and they passed into cs lewis's land of narnia at least as director andrew adamson interpreted the lion the witch and the wardrobe in that film version produced by Disney and Walden Media. That movie was a hit. It led to Prince Caspian a few years later. And then in December 2010, which was 10 years ago this month, Fox and Walden Media released the third film, The Voyage of the Dawn Treader. But fans and casual viewers were less impressed. And I do group myself in that category. There's a lot of fine stuff about that movie, but what made film one succeed And then just five years later, the third film sunk the Narnia film franchise. We're going to explore these differences as fans with help from an old friend who also likes to get together and jaw about Narnia. My old friend codenamed Rillian from NarniaWeb.com and their Talking Beasts podcast. This is going to be a fun one. You shan't want to miss it. Meanwhile, watch out for fairies. Don't step on any of them. Don't step on any piskies. They're learning to fly and learn to fly with fantasy, especially from Christian authors that naturally and excellently reflects a biblical worldview and helps us to challenge the unbiblical thinking that we have and cultivate these truths in our minds and in our imaginations as we continue to seek and find fantastical truth.